Hello and welcome to the Sense of Place podcast. Now in today's episode, I chat to Jack Cornish, the programme manager of the Ramblers project entitled Don't Lose Your Way, which in a nutshell aims to save Britain's historic rights of way. So before we get into today's episode, I'll give you an insight into some of the things me and Jack discuss. Firstly, we have a more detailed look into what the Don't Lose Your Way campaign is and the different ways you can go about finding lost rights of way. The history and legislation surrounding our rights of way, the role desire paths can play in the context of public rights of way and how they express the way we walk around the landscape. And then we also get into the topic of the lack of footpaths in the countryside and some city areas and the ways that these could be improved along with the positives of car-free areas in cities. And finally, we talk about Jack's love of walking cities and how he actually became involved in the Ramblers himself. So we'll get into today's episode now and I really hope you enjoy it. And I think if you're living in the UK, this is a real eye-opener and it's really informative. And I hope it inspires you to help Jack and the rest of his team to find some of Britain's lost historic footpaths. Anyway, as I said, we'll get into today's episode now and... I hope you enjoy it. Probably the best place to start is to ask, how did the Don't Lose Your Way campaign come about? And, you know, what's the general aim of it? Yeah, so um, Don't Lose Your Way is the, is the Ramblers campaign to find historic footpaths and other historic rights of way um, all across England and Wales and reclaim them and put them back on the map. The reason the campaign exists is because We've got an amazing rights of way network in England and Wales for 140,000 miles, um, which is uh, enough to get you halfway to the moon. Um, but uh, when the maps were originally drawn up to, to actually codify and put those rights of way on the map back in the 50s and 60s, things were left off by mistake or in some cases maybe uh, on purpose. And so we've got rights of way that that are missing. They are rights of way. The public should be able to use them, and they they go all the way across, you know, different landscapes all the way across the country. And the Ramblers are really keen to make sure that we uh, find where these historic paths are, and that we um, we claim them so that people can enjoy them and, and use them again. So is that mainly how they started to get lost? Was it after the maps because people didn't put them down, and then people weren't aware that they were there to to walk and things? Yeah, so, so what happened is back in the, in, there was an act in 1949, it, it was the act that uh, set up the national parks and, and national trails, and, and it was actually part of um, the Attlee government's um, sort of reforming package, you know, I, I, I like to see it alongside, you know, the NHS and, and, and those sort of, um, those sort of uh, achievements, and, and, and that act essentially said that for the first time, local authorities across the country had to map where all the public rights of way were in their area and that process of doing that went on into the 50s and 60s and I think the last map actually wasn't completed until until the mid 80s and during that process things were just left off so things that had been used were being used at the time or had been used in the past by the public things were just left off and um, what we've got now is we've got a situation where if we don't find where those are and if we don't claim them to put them back on the map by the 1st of January 2026, then we won't be able to do that in future. And so these paths that have been there for centuries, 
in some cases, in a lot of cases, that describe how our ancestors have moved around the landscape and have interacted with with the places around them um, will be gone forever. And, and that's, you know, for me, that's a really crucial part of our sort of shared history. And it's also part of the history of ordinary people and how they've interacted with with their landscape and with the countryside and with, with towns and cities. So we're, you know, spearheading this campaign to to engage people in engaging with their landscape, engaging with the history of, of where they live or where they know, and, and to to find these these lost rights away and, and to get them put back on the map. No, I think that's absolutely true. And I mean, how can they be recovered? How can people start to sort of find them? You know, is it? Yeah. So 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 there's sort of several ways, and, and and once you know what you're looking for, you start to become a bit of an expert, and it's quite a good uh, detective sort of hunt, but. We've got we've created a guide to finding the lost rights of way, and essentially that that sort of sets out three different ways that people can can find them. One is by looking at historic maps. We've got an amazing we've got loads of amazing resources that are online, which are a lot of, for instance, like Auden survey maps that go back to um, back to the end of the of the nineteenth century. They're all online. They're all geo referenced, so you can zoom in and click between different map layers, and and you can actually see the you know. Oh look! There used to be a footpath here that just isn't on the map now. Or mm. there actually used to be a road here that that doesn't exist, isn't publicly accessible now. Um, one of the other ways is once you know what you're looking for. If you look at an OS map, it doesn't take too long. Doesn't take long to see odd things. I don't know. You know, I, I've had the experience before of looking at a footpath and you just like it stops in the middle of nowhere. Mm. And often there'll be things like they stop on parish boundaries. And one of the things that happened back in the 50s and 60s is that in some counties, they literally got a map, got all the map sheets of the county, cut it, cut around the parishes, gave them to the parish to um, to draw on where they thought all their rights of way were in their area. And then they, they were given back by the parishes to the county council and then they put them all back together. The problem is that you'll have some parts that somebody drew and they drew it up to their boundary but the next parish didn't draw it up so you get paths that are just dead ends and that the end in the middle of sounds like it wasn't very well thought out was it (laughs) it it really wasn't and and the other thing is that it 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 wasn't thought out and and you know the ramblers and others played a big part in, in in helping map it but it wasn't consistent and that was a lot because you know the maybe the guidelines weren't as sort of laid down as they should be and and just Different county councils and different parish councils took slightly different um, approaches to this, um, and so you know. And, and the other thing you, you get is that you know, again, uh, some of your listeners will see like, oh, you know, I, where they live, they will see that there's loads of you know. If you look at an OS map, you see all these green dots that that, that show rights away, and then you look to the next door village, and there's hardly anything, and, and and that's like another good indication of where to start looking because. You know what we're we saying that people in that next door village didn't travel around the countryside. They only went on roads. They didn't use footpaths. They didn't use bridleways. And you know, in those cases, that's some of the uh, instances where, sort of, anecdotally, we we find out that the the chair of the parish council was uh, the big landowner in the area, for instance, and, and things were sort of conveniently uh, conveniently left off. So. Yeah, because I was actually going to ask, I was going to say, why did they not put them on? There must have been a reason. I'm guessing, did they want to privatise that for themselves? Is that I think why? so, yeah. I think, I think, as I say, I think there is a mixture of reasons. I think, 
you know, I don't know, we don't know how prevalent it was because, you know, this sort of thing that's not recorded, but yeah. I certainly, I'm, I'm, I'm convinced there were instances of parishes that, you know, landowners who didn't, who thought for whatever reason that they didn't want walkers and, and they didn't want the public to be, to be on their private land. And so they, you know, they, they, they wanted to, to keep them off and that might just be a sort of a, a general sense of, of not wanting the public there. It could be that they thought it was economically better not to have a, a footpath going across your field. You can farm in you know, more economic ways. Uh, so, you know, there was those. There, I mean, there also were a lot of genuine mistakes, I think, a lot of misinterpretation, a lot of things just accidentally missed off. And the, the other thing is that they, they, at the time, they were told to look back at old maps and see things that might be beyond their living memory where the public used it. And mm. if you think back to the 50s, you know, that everything would have been in the records office, everything would have been, you know, dusty shelves in the, in the local archives. And now we've got the ability to much better, in some places, much better access those documents. And so we know that at the time they didn't know about um, a particular map that showed a public right of way, you know, that might go back to the 17th century. But now we've got access to that. And we can see that actually they left something off because of that. So it, yeah, it really varies. I mean, I mean, on that sort of privatisation and economic point, I think at the Ramblers, we're very much of the view, you know, looking at the research that actually having rights of way on on people's land shouldn't be, yeah, you know, isn't an economic deterrent. Actually, you know, walkers bring six billion into the, the rural economy every year, and actually. You know, in this country, we've got a pretty unique system of, of rights of way where, you know, we've got private land with 95% probably of public rights of way over other people's property. I was going to ask that. That sounds like kind of a grey area. So is it the person who owns the land's decision? Can they decide whether they want to let the public walk through or is it just it should be? They should be allowed yeah, to? Yeah, they, they don't have much of a say over it, really. I mean, I mean you know, for, for established rights of way, um, as I said, 140,000 miles of them. These are rights of way that have only, really, in nearly all cases, have only come into existence because the public have been using them and they have not been stopped from using them. So it becomes a public rights of way. And, and once that's recorded and legally recorded, then it it really, you know, it, it, it offers a real level of protection. You know, that it comes with responsibilities for the landowner in terms of keeping that. Uh, right of way clear and usable you know not plowing over it or if they're going to plow over it they have to reinstate the path um not letting it degrade um, not letting styles and stuff sort of fall apart or or, or vegetation go over the path you know in, in, that would stop you using it so you, you know this is I, I sometimes think if we're talking to say i don't know an american for instance about this the idea that you've got all of these pub you know the it's quite strange in this country in a way. You've got an English attitude to some extent, or a British attitude to some extent. So English man's castle is the domain and all of that, houses, castle and everything. And private property is quite a entrenched concept, I think. But at the same time, we've got these public rights and they're used, you know, all across the country by people and they're used to access private land. And it's, you know, it's actually sort of, if you step back and think about it, that's quite a radical idea, I think. As said, you know, if you went to America or something, that would be, I think, quite an alien concept because these are public rights and they, you know, the public do have a right to be able to use these paths and be able to access their countryside and their country. 
Yeah, that's really, really true, actually. I hadn't thought that. I, I have to say, though, kind of when you're going out in the countryside, I feel like now I kind of do sometimes see quite a lot of like private, don't walk this way or super overgrown areas. And you feel like once upon a time, there probably were rights of way. So I can see how they're sort of getting, they're not being kept as well now, I suppose, or the people who own the land don't want people to go on them. So I think probably this yeah. campaign's a really good thing for, for that, just to make people aware and... Definitely, and I think, uh, and you know, the ultimately the the best way of maintaining a right of way and keeping it used and, and keeping it usable is is for people to use it. It's for people to go out and walk them and to to actually, you know, to, to understand what rights they've got and then to go and walk them. And, and obviously, at the Ramblers, we're really, you know, we run group walks that are going, you know, thousands of them all up and down the country that are groups of people going out and walking in the countryside and. Probably most of them are doing that because they enjoy that as a you know social activity, which is fantastic. You know, it's good for your health and well-being. But at the same time, doing that that very act um, is asserting rights and is keeping paths usable and open and and available for the public to use. You know, these are a lot of these paths. You know, some of them will go back centuries. And um, we need to make sure that we keep on using them so they can be used for, for sort of centuries to come. Yeah, something I did want to ask you actually was how did desire paths play a role in this? And for anyone listening who doesn't know what they are, they're basically paths that people kind of make themselves, you know, like when you're going to the shop and you don't want to walk the long way around. But I was kind of curious, do they could they be classed as footpaths one day or is it completely different? Because obviously if you think of those historic footpaths once upon a time they must have literally just been like you say the way people walked around the land and the way they wanted to go and would a desire path ever eventually count as a uh, you know an official path or would that never work uh, yeah they definitely could so so as you say you know if we think back you know before desire path probably uh, any sort of concept in any way at all as you say if you think back to when people wanted to go to work in the field or go to the pub or wherever, go to the, you know, the mill. Um, these were, you know, they, they went through the paths that made the most sense to them, sort of, you know, in terms of how you sort of walk around the countryside or ride around the countryside. And so those became public rights of way through, through use. And um, that can happen now. There's a, there's a legal rule that essentially if, if you can show the public has used a particular route, like a desire path um, for 20 years, then that becomes a right of way and it go on official maps and it, it, it gets that level of protection. So, you know. Well, oh, that's interesting. I didn't, yeah. So they, yeah, they can, can have legal yeah. sort of status. And if you, if you think about, you, you know, they, they really vary in the sort of types of, of paths that come up through that. Some are just things like sort of ginnels or alleyways or whatever, sort of between houses and things like that, that, no one would probably challenge people walking down them, but if unless they're officially recorded, they don't have that that protection. And there's things like, yeah, cut throughs of uh, you know, like to get to the shops and things like that, and and um, you know things, you know, cut throughs through corners of fields, and you know, and, and as long as we can demonstrate that the public have used it and that they haven't been told not to, you know, so if somebody, if you have one of those, and someone put up a private "Don't walk here" sign that would raise an issue potentially about claiming that. But these claims are made all the time to, to put these these paths back on the map, to put these paths on the map for the first time. And, and they will go along essentially where people want to walk, which is 
basically what desire desire lines are and desire paths are. You know, they're they're, they're how people naturally walk. And I think you know, I, I've always found them fascinating. I love the um, example of uh, I think it was a University in Canada. Have you seen that? What they did with the desire paths? They um, no, I haven't. They they basically they were they created a new campus and for the first I think two years they just um, they didn't put any pavements on or any paths like across the grass and stuff. And they just let people walk where they wanted to walk. And then once people have worn down the grass bit, then they put the paths where those where that sort of wearing it happened. And so it's a really sort of um, that's such a good idea. I know it is, isn't it? It just yeah. makes perfect sense. I mean, I suppose potentially for for a bit, you've got people having to walk through some mud if you know for the English weather wasn't as great. But um, yeah, but yeah, it's such a great idea. It means it's sort of I suppose it's really human centered sort of landscaping, isn't it? It's, it's creating a place. That isn't just sort of put down as a grid on top of on top of the landscape. It's it's putting down a sort of canvas and letting mm. people sort of paint where they want to walk, and, and actually, uh, uh, you know, putting people at the heart of that sort of design of that public space. So um, I think it'd be great if we could do more of that, really, and you know, new developments and stuff. Yeah, I, I really think they could take a leaf from their book with that because, you know, I feel like you go everywhere and you see like you have the paths that go all the way around. People just walk straight across the grass or they cut up a little hill that they just want the quickest route. Desire paths are everywhere. Like people don't really, you know, when they get the chance, they won't walk the, the path that's been laid out. They want to go the way they want to go, which will speed them up. So Completely. I love it when you see the desire paths that are literally just like, cutting five seconds off the I know. <laughs> the I know. corner of a, of a sort of, you know, just cussing corner off. And, and actually, if, um, you know, maybe if the, the people who lay down those parks or that sort of green space or whatever had thought about it for, for a little bit longer, then actually they would have realised that, you know, that's going to happen. And, and you know, and, and I don't think you can stop that and actually putting, having a, an approach to, to laying out those sort of spaces that is, centered upon you know how people are actually in the real world going to interact with them I think you know it's got to be pretty key really yeah I mean maybe it's something people will start to think about more in the future because I mean it's you you hear more about desire paths don't you now sort of in the news and stuff and um that like I say they're everywhere like people just want the quickest route possible like even if it's the most tiniest little (laughs) little thing they'll make they'll make their own pathway so yeah, it'd be interesting to see, but I think definitely that university you were talking about, they got the right idea with that. Just it saves them wasting their time building like the wrong paths, if you know what I mean. Exactly. And then having to sort of, you know, try and reseed the grass where everyone's, you know, cut cutting the corner or, you know, taking the taking the desire path, you know, you have surely in the long run it, it Yeah. Yeah, it wastes it, it you know, it doesn't waste people's time and it also as I said, it creates something that is just, you know, even if you didn't know that that was a space that that had been done in, I imagine if you went there, it would feel more, more sort of human centered. It would feel more like it mm. was a space for people because you know it, it would, it completely is in sync with how you naturally want to move around that space. Definitely, yeah. Going back to the project, twenty twenty six sounds like quite a way off. I mean, how's it going? Are you getting like a good response? Are you, are you finding lots of paths, or and why? Also, why is it twenty twenty six? Why is that the cutoff date as well? Yeah. So, so just to, to take that one first. So basically, um, you know, without sort of delving too much back into legislation, but essentially in uh, in two thousand, 
there was a, a an act that went through Parliament that um, was fantastic for walkers in a lot of ways. It created open access land, so it meant that um, there's large parts of, of the country where you can sort of walk freely wherever you want, like on mountain or moor or heathland and, and common land and, and things like that. But part of that bill was also creating a cutoff date for for claiming these historic rights of way, and, and essentially it was a part of a compromise. I think you know landowners thought that having people being able to claim historic rights of way that potentially haven't been used for several hundred years um, was a burden on them, and so they they wanted it brought in. Now, when that was brought in, there was lots of promises in the sort of mid two thousands that money would be devoted by government to finding all these paths and to, to making sure they get put on the map and that didn't really happen so it's it's organizations like the ramblers that are sort of stepping up and and empowering a sort of citizen-led movement that's that, that's looking for these for these paths and that and that's going well i think i mean we you know we're we're ramping up the campaign in january we'll be launching a big crowdsourcing effort which will essentially be a spot the difference so it will be you. What you'll be able to do is you'll be able to go on any square in the country, any part of the country, and you'll be able to see uh, the current rights of way map, and you'll be able to see some historic maps. And we want people to say, "Oh, look, there's a footpath that's not on the current map," and draw it on. And that time, that way, we can build up a true picture of where all these paths are, and then and then we can get we can sort of support and empower people to do research to actually claim those paths and, and put them back on the map. I mean, there's definitely a big, it's a big challenge. Uh, the government, again, back in the, in the 2000s, estimated there's at least 10,000 miles oh, wow. missing. Wow, that's a lot. Which is, uh, yeah, I know, getting as far as Sydney, so it's uh, not an inconsiderable uh, amount of, uh, of miles missing, I think, and, and, and we'll, time will tell once we've done this crowdsourcing, but... I think we'll—that's an underestimate. I think a significant underestimate. It wouldn't—it wouldn't surprise me if it's double that. And you know, six years to some extent seems like a long time ago, but it will, it will come around quickly. So, I mean, one thing that, that we've um, we've also been sort of keen to, to call for is, um, is is extending that date by at least five years, and, and we'll, we'll see what happens with that. How but, do you uh, go about? Is that do you, would you have to ask like government permission for that? Or? Yeah. So it's, Basically, the original act allowed the um, the Secretary of State for the Environment to, to be able to extend it, and, and, and you know we'll see what happens. Obviously, politically at the moment, there's a lot of things wrong. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so you know, so so we're sort of focused on on making sure that sort of irrespective of, of if that day changes, that that we want to get as many people as possible involved, and we want to you know we're cracking on basically. We're making sure that that we're getting people engaged in the issue and actually starting to do that practical work yeah. to, um, to to find the paths. And we've had an amazing response so far. You know, we've had thousands of people come forward who say they're interested in it, they want to get involved. You know, they, it, it, you know I think it, it's quite a, in some ways, sort of rights away legislation and law can be sort of quite abstract and stuff. But I think a lot of people have really got that this is about losing a, a part of our heritage and a part mm. of our history. And also using a, the opportunity to to make how we can interact with the with the countryside and how we can access the countryside better. You know, the examples I talked about earlier of sort of dead end paths that end at the parish boundary. Now, if we don't claim the rest of that path, 
who's going to walk that path? Who's going to walk, you know, <laughs> sort of a mile down a path and then just walk back again? You know, maybe a couple of people, maybe some dog walkers and stuff. But once you make that missing link, then it opens up through routes, opens up circular routes, opens up the ability for people to actually, you know, walk much more and to cycle much more and to ride their horses. You know, it, it makes a countryside that, that makes more sense, I suppose, in terms of how, how people will, will interact with it. And in a way, it's a sort of parallel to that desire lines thing we were talking about. You know, it, it's it's a sort of human-focused countryside. It's one that, that makes sense for people in terms of how they're going to walk around it rather than a line on the map that just ends in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, I th- honestly, in every way, I think this is such a good p- campaign because I... For people getting out there and doing it, they must feel probably a bit of a sense of achievement if they actually manage to save some paths and things like that. And is it? Do you think it's something you could maybe get like I suppose older teenagers' schools involved? Because I suppose if the more people you had, the quicker you'd be sort of finding these paths. And yeah, definitely. I mean, when when we launched the crowdsourcing, we're we're really keen to you know to get a a wide range of people involved. You know, if I'm being you know, Frank, at the moment, probably a lot of the people who are who are doing this work, they're, they're fantastic work and obviously, you know, they're doing valuable work. But, you know, it's, it's probably mostly sort of retired people who have got some time to do it. And, yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It's get, getting the time to... But, but, you know, the whole... A lot of the charity sector and a lot of, you know, the sort of sector relies on those people and, it, and it's, they're fantastic. What we're, what we're doing with this crowdsourcing and some of the other IT stuff that will follow it is that... We want to make it something that people can do, can contribute to by doing half an hour, doing something for half an hour or 10 minutes, you know, on the train, on the way to work or whatever. But it's it's enabling that to contribute to a whole and to, mm. to, to really make a difference. And so we're trying to break it down as much as possible because people, once they find out about the issue, people do, do really engage with it and it does really inspire them and or, or make them sort of righteously angry about what we might be losing and so we want to make it as easy for everyone to get involved as as possible i think for me that younger generation is also really key because it's you know the way i see this issue is it's a sort of intergenerational thing it's what we're essentially doing is we're looking back into the past sometimes back centuries and centuries about you know how our sort of ancestors and forebears have, have, have work, interact with the countryside and we're putting something back on the map that will be there for centuries to come. You know, it's, it's a sort of very singular point in time thing about reaching back and then, and then sort of establishing something that will be there for generations. And, and that's why I'm really keen to get a sort of really wide range of people involved because it is about that legacy. It's about you can do something now. You know, you don't get often in life, you don't get to say you can do something that is sort of basically permanent, <laughs> you know, that will be there forever yeah you know, exactly. in theory. so you, you know i think you know i think that's a really powerful thing for people to sort of get involved with and, and for people to engage with yeah i mean because that's the thing the younger generations they're going to be the ones that will in the future be walking these paths and if they're gone you know that'd be such a shame and one of the other ways you can actually look for these paths is i talked earlier on about the sort of maps and stuff but Another thing is being very aware around you about mm. when you're sort of in the countryside and when you're out walking, and not even the countryside, but when you're just out walking, looking for clues of, of where there might be something that's missing. So some yeah. of the things like, oh, is the is the path that you walked, you know, where you grew up or whatever, is it actually on the map? You can check that. But there's also things like, 
I remember walking in Cornwall and, and um, along there was a sort of really old Cornish hedgerow and then in the, stuffed into it was a, a, um, a slate style, really worn down, obviously been there for decades, if not, if not centuries, but it was pretty overgrown and I sort of looked at it and I looked at my map and, and according to the map, there was no path on the other side. There was no, you know, registered right of way, whereas the amount that that style had been worn down by people stepping on it over centuries probably indicates that it was a public right of way that, that, that yeah. the map. And so it's, you know, some of these sort of clues are really around you. And once you start engaging with them and understanding them, it really sort of really heightened the appreciation of why our countryside is like what it is and, and, and what the places around you, how people would have sort of fit in with it in, in sort of centuries gone by. So, um, yeah, it's. I think. Yeah, it can. You know, it's a really enjoyable thing to sort of get involved in. Yeah, really. get your detective hat on, pretty much, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's another example is um, again, if you start to notice it when you don't know have it, but sometimes you see like sort of two random sort of rows of trees and stuff like across a field or, or something like that, and and you start to you know, especially they're old, you know, older trees that have gone back hundred years or something. You start to think, well, why is that there? That doesn't make much sense, and it's probably because there was an old lane. That went between those those trees, and that's an old sort of remnant of a of an old boundary, mm. and that again probably would have been used by the public. I mean, you know, you need to look into it. It might have been private, but it's probably you know most people in a pre car age rode a horse around the countryside, horse and car, or walked around the countryside. So it's not surprising that there's thousands and thousands of miles of, of rights of way that describe that, and and also thousands that are missing that that that, you know, should go back on the map. Yeah, no, I mean, when you think of the roads today, it's very, they're not very well made for walking, are they really? They're made for cars pretty much, aren't they? Like even just when you think of, you know, like industrial estates and things, when you go out to them, you, I, I don't drive, but, you know, say you want to go there to go to a shop, they're not very accessible if you're on foot or you're getting the bus or something. It's very much like you need a car and yeah. it's just, they don't think of things like that anymore, which is really a shame I think completely maybe if they did people might want to walk more <laughs> places you know well, exactly so. you know we I think there's probably two things on that some of them are you know if we're talking about more sort of out in the countryside these are routes that were literally not made for cars they were made for you know if you think of old lanes in the countryside with high hedges and stuff they can be quite hard to walk along because they're quite narrow you know, cars take up a lot of room, more than, you know, a horse and cart probably would have done, or mm. definitely more than a single person on a horseback would have done, you know, back in the day. And so, there, you know, often there aren't any pavements, so having more sort of off-road routes is, is really important. And then you've got the thing about, you know, more recent developments where the car is key and, and, and actually, I find it, you know, sometimes, I find it quite shocking. I don't drive either. And there's, there's instances of where, you know, it's just like, you know, this was only built 10 years ago and yet there's no proper pavement. I mean, it's sort of crazy. Exactly. You 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 end up sometimes just walking along the side of the road and it's really dangerous. Exactly, yeah, sort of picking your way for a grass verge that's got loads of glitter in it and that's sort of got bits of car tyre, you know, bits of sort of hubcap. Exactly, like yeah. And, you know, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's a real issue. I mean, one thing that... We also do at the Ramblers is we've got a, we've just done the second year of a, what we call our Walking Neighbourhoods Awards, and that's about celebrating where uh, towns and cities in particular put people 
on foot at the heart of of how they design and, and, and how they redesign their towns and cities. So that's about having um, green spaces that you want to go to and that you can walk through, but it's also about having um, segregated, uh, you know, being able having, you know, wide pavements, having um, lots of good crossings. You know, there's there's loads of things that, that, that make, I think you can tell when you're in somewhere that is, mm that doesn't put the car first and it, and again it feels like a more human place and it there's some great research i think tfl did about um places pedestrianized streets or streets where um, cars are excluded so you can still sort of cycle and stuff um they often have businesses on those streets will get more though people will buy more each time they go to shops on those streets um because you know it's 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 much more of a social thing and it's and it's much more of a human way of sort of interacting with towns and cities. So I think that makes it that totally makes sense. And I went to London, Sweden recently, and it was like that. There's pretty much no cars, it's just bikes, everyone walking around. And there's a real sense of kind of community and everyone out having food on the street, drinking, like just a good vibe, you know, when there's no cars. It really makes a difference. And I definitely agree with you. I think that really makes a difference for people wanting to go shopping or go out when there's not cars around. Actually, so. yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I say this as I said as someone who doesn't drive, but you know, I find you know cars in cities quite antisocial, really, in a way. Do you know what I mean? Obviously, I know that some people need them, and that's completely understandable. But mm. you, you know, we need to have environments that encourage people to to get out walking or to cycle or to use public transport. And it's a sort of slightly vicious, well, it's sort of a virtuous circle in a way. Like the more we have that, the more people will do it and the more they want to have environments that that encourage uh, encourage that sort of that sort of active travel, you know. And that's about you know everything from actually excluding cars from certain areas, but it's also about having places that people want to go and that people want to stop and as you say, sit out on a bar or a cafe or restaurant or having you know more more street trees more planting you know this is all about creating an environment that actually people want to go to and people want to go to on foot or on or on bike you know they yeah i think it's it's important and and i also you know on a sort of wider a wider point it completely fits in with surely what we want to be achieving in terms of people's health and well-being yeah and in terms of you know tackling climate emergency you know it's it's sort of imperative that we do it I think I know it's it's just a win-win it's just especially like you're saying in cities I mean as well like yeah you do need cars for certain things but like you say when it comes to a city I think you kind of need to lay off the cars of it it's just Hmm. I'm always surprised with London funnily it's always so congested with cars but you feel like well it's obviously not true but I was going to say it feels like if you go into London, everyone gets like the tube or the train or the bus. You don't people who gets their car into London really. It doesn't seem like, but but yeah, there's heaps of cars around. And I know, I know. I mean, where where, where I live in, in Southeast London, in Lewisham, um, I think uh, only forty percent of people own a car, um, mm. and I think over fifty percent of car journeys in Lewisham are done by people outside of the borough. So there are people driving through. So, you know, it's not always, um, you know, it's, it's, so that's sort of, you, you know, and we, locally, we, we've, in certain pockets, particularly, we've got real bad issues with with um, 
with pollution and, and you know, people actually dying from, from pollution. And it, it, it feels, as I say, really antisocial for people who don't live locally to be driving through somewhere, you know, probably not using local shops and businesses and, you know, sort of uh, polluting the environment. You know, I think, you know, we need to be able to, uh, local politicians to sort of take a lead in terms of creating these neighbourhoods. I think there's probably also an element of changing mindsets as well around the need for cars and things like that. You know, I think I saw um, recently, I can't, remember, I, think, I can't remember which charity it was, but one charity, they did a big office move across London and they did it completely on cargo bikes. So even they even managed to get the big photocopier and stuff on a bike, on a cargo bike. And, you know, so it starts to think, actually, do you need all of these sort of, you know, vans driving around London, carting things around? Actually, could it be done by bike and things like that? So, you know, it's, it's, it's just sort of slightly changing perceptions about what you can and can't do uh, with, with a car or without a car, I think. I think people are just so used to driving in cars because this actually makes me think of an example of a girl I used to work with. So there was a cost literally across the road and funnily enough there was actually one of those desire paths made to get to it through this bush so you got there in like a minute and she'd always drive her car there and I used to say to her I was like why are you driving your car over there like it's about a minute and she's like oh I don't like walking and I think it's just a lot of people just get so used to cars you know and we go everywhere in cars that they wouldn't even think to just walk anywhere you know completely I mean you know I'm in London and I think even though, you know, we said earlier on, you know, the, the streets are, you know, much more congested than we'd like. I think in London, there is a proportion of people that sort of having a car is slightly, they don't understand why you would have a car. Do you know what I mean? So I think, you know, you, once, and that's, I think, probably about, because we've got pretty decent public transport. And, and yeah. you know, when I go out of London, local bus services don't really exist, or they'd be cut to the bone, or they're not connected up, so you can't, you know, in London, you can hop from bus to bus in an hour and, you know, you could do things like that. Whereas, you know, that sort of doesn't exist within within other places. And so it's it's about those big policy changes as well, I think. Yeah, do you know what? That's completely true. I completely forgot about that because actually, yeah, you know, when you go out, I think it was, where was I, like Norfolk or somewhere, there was like a bus an hour. It was, you get so comfy with London transport, how frequent it is and things. And actually, the truth is when you're out in the country, you really need a car like the buses are just not reliable enough they don't come frequently enough and so on so yeah that's something that needs to sort of be looked into completely yeah and you know it would, I think it would make it would sort of be quite revolutionary in a way you know we, there's obviously a lot of talk sort of politically about railways and stuff and I, I love going by train I think it's really important but actually if we increase sort of suburban bus services that would probably make even more of a difference in terms of it would yeah got cities like i remember uh i I think i mean i don't have the exact stats so you know i don't want to go too far down his line but but in places like leeds and stuff where i know i've got a friend who works there and and, and lives sort of on sort of the outside and drives in and everyone you know who work with drives into work but actually if you had a network of buses that came from the outer to the inner and, and across you know you how many you could move some people from doing that you know because being able to take the bus has a lot of advantages not just sort of that bigger environmental stuff but things like you could read (laughs) listen to music properly you know you could you know you could maybe have a couple of drinks after work and get the bus back you won't have to worry about that you know it actually has 
sort of wider lifestyle benefits as well, I think. So, um, yeah, I think that would make a massive Massively. Difference. How did you yourself sort of get into this area, get interested in walking and saving the historic footpath? Yeah, so so before I joined the Ramblers uh, on the Don't Lead Your Way project, I actually, um, two years ago, and they've just gone actually, actually two years ago this week, I think, um, I just finished uh, walking from Land's Edge to Groats. And, you know, I, I basically, I was doing something quite a different sort of career before, took some time off, did that over uh, about four months of, uh, I took quite a long route round. And, um, you know, it was amazing just to be on foot every day and to be able to go from a city to a city or to sort of see how sort of the progress you made as you sort of, as I inched up the country and stuff. And I think that's where it sort of hit home to me, the importance of, of these rights of way and, and this network that extends all the way across the country. And then, and then yeah, I had the opportunity to, to join the Ramblers and to actually sort of hopefully with the project make a difference and make, you know, make that network better and make and make more of these rights enshrined really. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I've always loved walking. Maybe when I was, you know, a lot younger, I was moaning my parents and dragging me around walking and stuff. Actually, yeah. <laughs> yeah. actually, you know, it probably instilled, even if it was latent, it probably instilled a love for it. And yeah, so I did that. And I, I also love, I mean, probably my first love is actually walking in cities, you know, I, I think, and especially walking in London. Mm. I've been doing for about six years, I think. I've been sort of doing this very slow and ongoing and potentially never-ending project of, trying to walk every street in London so oh, I love that such a good that's such a fun idea yeah I mean it's uh, I, I managed to somehow pick a really big a, a to z so it goes from like sort of Croydon in the south to Barnet in the north and Heathrow to Romford so but quite a lot of streets to do yeah. but it's uh but doing that sort of thing is amazing because you sort of there, there'll probably be a street near you or, or, or near everyone there definitely was near me that is within two minutes walk of you, but you've never walked down it because it's not on the way to somewhere. It's not on the way to the tube or to the shop or whatever. And you never know what's going to be down it. It might be just a really interesting house. It might be, mm. you know, an amazingly planted garden. It might be a little shop you never known about. You know, it could be anything or it could be nothing, but it's, you know, that sort of, um, that spirit of just sort of wandering in the city is, is and exploring and discovering sort of what's around the corner, I think, for me, it's like amazing, you know, and it's sort of just slowly chipping away at it in a way. But um, it gives me the excuse to just go and plonk myself in a new area of London and just walk around and see what's there and see what's going on. Yeah. No, that's very true what you say, though. There does come a point where the area you, you live, you sort of don't go beyond a certain point and you never really know what's beyond there. It's funny, really. And then, yeah, like that's definitely a good way to sort of see. Also, you must kind of start to notice how everything all interlinks and everything like that by doing this as well just yeah, all the roads and everything completely like this yeah you, again in the same way there's probably a street near you there's probably an area that's quite near you, you've never been to because you jump over it on mm. the train or on the tube or on the bus or whatever and yeah and actually you, you do start to see those links and you start to see how one sort of almost sort of culturally one area bleeds into another yeah. i mean one of the, the things I love about London is its sort of diversity and how you get these little pockets of sort of nationalities sort of living in sort of pockets and stuff, you know, and there's obviously sort of famous ones like sort of Golders Green, I suppose, and sort of Wembley's got a big Indian population or sort of Bangladeshi in the sort of 
Whitechapel way and stuff like that. But you know, you sort of stumble upon like little Portugal or little Korea, you know, <laughs> these areas, and the, and you sort of start to sort of see those. Of, and, and often I didn't know about them, and you just wander along. You say, There's a lot of shops there. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, lots of cafes or whatever that sell about Portuguese food and stuff like that. And you, you know, it's it's you do start to see those those links. And I think, and you do see places you, you know, in the same way that streets near you've never been to. There's, you know, what I think Londoners have a tendency to sort of stick to things they know to some extent. Although, yeah, you know, definitely. And probably there's probably people who've lived all their life in London. Say they're from like Southwest London. They might have never ever been to Ealing. Do you know what I mean? Like, they, or they've yeah. South East London, never been to Ealing because they don't know anyone lives there. They they've never had a job there. You know, so like, it's sort of these abilities to, to be able to just go to whole parts of London that that potentially I've never explored, and that you know, so sort of actually explore it for the first time and and sort of find out what it's about, what the city's about, really. Yeah, no, it sounds really really great. Do you just do you just like do this on your on the weekend and stuff, just? in your spare time then or yeah basically yeah sort of uh sort of chipping away really i've, I've got a sort of tendency to again it's sort of it's another sort of side bonus in a way but a tendency to say oh can i you know work out if i've got time to go somewhere half an hour early and walk around you know if i'm going to a pub or something go there a little bit early and walk a couple of the side streets or go a slightly different way or getting across London, oh, I've got time to walk between one place and the other instead of getting the tube so I can, you know, cross off a couple of streets. It's that sort of thing, really. It's a lot of it sort of chipping away at it. A lot of it is also, you know, some of it's just sort of, I'm going to, this Saturday, I'm going to get on the tube and get off at a random place and walk around, you know. It's, uh, it's sort of, yeah, a mixture of that, yeah. really. Um, but, it, yeah, it does mean that you get to just see see a whole other side of the city. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, good luck with that. It sounds really good. <laughs> I think it's one of these things that's potentially an unfinishable task. <laughs> but, it's a lifelong um, task it's now. <laughs> you know, it's um, you know, but it's sort of it, it's almost like it's worth while doing it. You know, just just the doing of it makes it worthwhile. I suppose. Yeah, definitely. What's the website? Where can people find the Don't Lose Your Way campaign and more about it online? And you know if they want to get involved with this? Yeah, so uh, if, if people go to uh, ramblers.org.uk forward slash don't lose your way, that would take you to this to the guide to, to finding lost rights of way. It's a really sort of snappy guide you can you can download. And, and when you download that, you can um, you can sign up to sort of hear more about, about the campaign. We've got loads of really exciting things coming over the next sort of three or four months that, you know, that I think people would love to get involved with. So if you go there now and and download that guide and you can sign up and, and, you, and you'll hear more from us and um, you know we want everyone to get involved with this and everyone to to really engage with with their landscape and with with the countryside and and to um you know help us on this fight to save these lost rights away because you know once they're gone they're gone and and, and we've got this one-time opportunity so so yeah people go and download the guide and um and uh you know they can they can start getting involved from there really Brilliant. Well, thanks for chatting to me, Jack. I really appreciate it. That's all right. So there we have it. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode. And just to reiterate what Jack said, if you head over to ramblers.org.uk forward slash don't lose your way, 
you'll be able to download the guide and find out a lot more information about how to get involved and sign up to hear further information on what they're up to if you'd like. Now I did download this guide but obviously as some of you know I haven't been living in the UK at the moment so it's not a great deal I can do but when I get back later this year it's definitely something I'd like to get involved a lot more with. Now today is not going to be one of my short ending episodes where I'm like please subscribe, check out the episode, yada 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 because today is the last episode for a little while and I just want to do a little bit of a reflection and update for you all. I'm in the process of recording some new episodes which I'm really excited for you all to hear so work will be continuing on the podcast. I do just want to say again a big thank you to everyone who's taken the time to leave me messages of support whether that's been through Twitter or via a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever they call it these days. Today I'm up in my game and I'm going to try and get those coins out of your pocket. So I do have a Patreon page which for anyone who isn't aware allows you to donate a minimum of one dollar which last time I checked is roughly 75p. You can do this every month, every week, every episode, every year, whatever you fancy to be honest with you. And in return for this, you'll get sneak peeks of upcoming episodes before everyone else and other little tidbits that I will be adding to the page. At this stage, I haven't created any tiers. I think I'd like people to be able to contribute what they feel they can afford and everyone can get the same benefits regardless. But any small donation would be greatly appreciated as it would contribute to covering the costs of maintaining the website, the domain name and the host platform for this podcast. I'd also like to say a massive thank you. I actually got my first patron a couple of weeks ago and you know who you are and I'm so grateful for your contribution to the show. Thank you so much. It really means a lot. One other thing I'd like to add is if more of a regular donation isn't your thing, I also do have a Kofi page where you can just contribute a one-off donation to the show. You don't have to donate. Like, if you can't, that's absolutely fine. But obviously, you know, it. like I say, it does help out with covering the costs of creating this podcast. Other than that, I'd just like to say that I hope you all had a fantastic Christmas and that so far you're having a wonderful new year. If you're on Twitter, you can always check that out for updates on how the progress is going with the recording of the new episodes. But like I say, they're well underway. If you're not on Twitter, you can just check out the website, which is www.senseofplacepod.com. And obviously you'll find other stuff here, like the podcast, all the different platforms you can listen to it on, some bonus content and links to the pages if you do want to make a donation. Anyway, have a lovely day, morning, evening, whatever time it is, wherever you're listening, and I'll speak to you again soon.